Okay. Um, wow. A lot, of, a lot of people here. Uh, a little intimidating. It's been intimidating the whole time. Um, and uh, this just, um, yeah, adds to, obviously I'll, I'll do a little bit of, uh, of recap of what we've covered the last two weeks. Um, if you haven't been here for the last two weeks, um, when we get to Q&A, I might ask that you hold off a little bit uh, in case so we don't uh, cover some of the ground um, that we have covered in the previous two classes, because I can only give a kind of flyby of what we have, um, what we've done so far. Um, I uh, came home last Sunday, um, and I just sat on my steps and cried, because this is just exhausting. Um, and yet, I have never gotten so much feedback uh, for a class as I've gotten from these last few weeks. Uh, it's clearly touching a nerve. People are wanting to have these conversations. There are people who are hurting or people who have loved ones that are hurting and they're trying to figure out uh, how, do we, how do we navigate this with integrity as Christians uh, and also with the compassion of Christ. Uh, so thank you for the many kind emails I've gotten. Um, and uh, please be kind uh, if you disagree with me uh, by the end of this. Um, so uh, as I started uh, two weeks ago, uh, I, I said we have a few preliminary remarks to get out of the way. Uh, we're focusing this class um, um, on uh, same-sex sexual activity within the context of marriage. So it's not um, about um, uh, gay lifestyle, whatever that might mean, or same-sex sexual activity in general. But uh, we take for granted in this class that, that sex is something that is, uh, for Christians, reserved for marriage. So the question is, um, is, uh, is gay marriage um, appropriate uh, thing for the church to, uh, to sanction? Uh, and, and then within that context would be where homoerotic activity might take place. Um, it's important then, along with that, that we define our terms. And uh, I will strive to do that. Uh, and... Um, and one of the, the ways that I think this really gets mishandled is when people talk about um, maybe homosexuality in general. Um, and even if you are, um, well, especially if you're holding on to a traditional ethic, um, a traditional Christian ethic that sees same-sex sexual practice as sin, uh, we have to be careful that we don't talk about same-sex sexual attraction as sin. Uh, those are two very different things. Um, so um, that's just uh, an important piece to clarify. Uh, and I mentioned that this is not about uh, needing to be PC, um, but there is uh, the important missional piece of this. If, if we m mishandle this, if we do this kind of um, ignorantly, uh, then we can put unnecessary obstacles between the gospel and others, and uh, that the law of love requires us to do this with compassion as we take seriously uh, the suicide and homelessness rates, uh, particularly among um, gay and lesbian teens. So um, um, I also uh, mentioned, gosh, I didn't want to do this three times, but this got dragged into three weeks, uh, that I struggle with my own um, uh, sexual uh, morality issues uh, with lust. And... Um, so the analogy I use is, um, is that I feel like I am, uh, I am speaking, I'm working with a plank in my eye, trying to help those of you who have a speck in your eye to see more clearly. And uh, the last preliminary remark was that we're kind of 
narrowing in on how we think about this in the church, not uh, how we might apply this at a government or state level. Uh, this is not about how we should vote or what laws we should pass. That's a second order question. That's beyond our scope. Then I pointed to um, a few ways uh, that this gets this conversation could sometimes goes poorly or insufficiently uh, when we uh, try to um, try to quickly end the conversation with platitudes like it's natural, therefore it must be okay. Uh, where um, where what I've I've said about these platitudes like it's natural or we can't judge or it's not loving is is that those claims are insufficient but not irrelevant. So that's an important important uh, parameters. So um, it's not irrelevant to say that it's natural, uh, but that's insufficient as a conversation ender. Uh, we have all kinds of natural inclinations that we still nevertheless feel like we need to uh, limit. Um, that Christians do see the need to, uh, to hold each other accountable. So while we might not condemn, there is a judgment as far as holding each other accountable. And sometimes the loving thing to do is, is um, to do that very thing. Proof texting um, is also insufficient but not irrelevant. Sodom and Gomorrah it does not really apply here. Leviticus 20, again, insufficient but not irrelevant since we don't apply all of Leviticus. Appealing to uh, my, how I feel or um, my sense of the Spirit is also insufficient but not irrelevant. Um, our discernment of the Spirit is not foolproof. None of us have uh, kind of canonical discernment of the spirits. We always need to test that against Scripture. And I also said that it's entirely possible every person in here uh, who is Christian evidences the fruit of the Spirit in some areas of their lives and not others. Uh, so uh, there is um, to say that the Spirit might be present in our um, uh, gay and lesbian uh, Christians' lives is not the same thing as saying, therefore, everything that person practices is, um, is approved by the Spirit. Um, so that was... That was Week one, Sunday one. Um, Sunday two, uh, I moved into um, to looking at different ways that uh, this conversation might go that's a little bit better than those, um, those kind of quick um, platitudes, proof text, and so forth. Uh, so the, um, as I am aware, the two strongest cases uh, for gay marriage uh, First would be to say that when you see those biblical prohibitions, especially in the New Testament, uh, that those are um, speaking to something that is, is way different than uh, what we're looking for today in covenantal uh, same-sex marriage. So it might be referring to men sleeping with boys, which was a common practice, uh, that it might be referring to um, homoerotic activity outside of the context of marriage, um, and uh, it might be referring to the kind of um, male, male sexual activity that was not about love or union, but it was about status and dominance um, in that honor-shame culture. Uh, so that would be uh, one side of this argument. Uh, some others, uh, oh, well, let me clarify this. So they would say, yes, those biblical prohibitions still stand, it's just that they apply in these areas, not to uh, covenantal um, marriage. Uh, the, other, um, the other argument uh, would be to say something along the lines of, um, yes, uh, Scripture seems to prohibit this, 
And yes, even those biblical prohibitions seem to uh, go not only with this, but even what might be covenantal same-sex marriage. However, uh, when we take seriously the suffering and pain uh, that some of these prohibitions cause, um, then uh, we might appeal to the hi a higher law at work, the law of love, the law of compassion that says um, to maintain this, this, these kind of prohibitions um, is too high of a cost uh, given uh, the... Um, the product um, that results from it. So, when Jesus heals on the Sabbath, this might be the analogy, um, Jesus doesn't defend his healing by saying, I'm not working on the Sabbath. He instead defends it by saying, essentially, the law of mercy applies here. Uh, what is better, to, uh, to do good or to do evil, um, to save life or to destroy, something along those lines. So, yes, there are prohibitions. However, sometimes uh, there's laws that are uh, stronger than that. So that would be um, it's kind of what I summarized as the case for. Um, and, of course, there's the, the third option, that is, the Bible's not relevant, so why do we care? But that's not what we're doing in here. We're thinking, how do we hold a high view of Scripture uh, and seeking to stay rooted in something like traditional Christian faith uh, and, and yet still see a way uh, to, um, yeah, to see gay marriage as an option for Christians? So, uh, the case for a traditional uh, marital or sexual ethic um, would uh, respond, uh, first, um, that the cultural situation was not as different as claimed. So, this might be a response to number one. So, if you were here two weeks ago, I read several examples uh, from a guy um, who, uh, whose name, Preston Sprinkle, go ahead and get the giggles out. Uh, who showed historically that, in fact, while this is true, it's not the whole story, that there, is, uh, there was um, consensual uh, marital um, uh, options for uh, homoerotic uh, behavior or love or marriage, whatever you might say. Um, so it would be a challenge to number one of saying that's, that's not quite the full picture there. Um, and I, I find that, that he's... I think he's right. Uh, and so I think, for me, the, the more compelling case um, would be that maybe there's a higher law at work. Um, so the, the counter case might be something like uh, these next two, three, four, and five that might begin to, or at least two, three, and four that might begin to, to respond to this would be to say, well, the, uh, the, the univocal, so kind of the one voice of Scripture, um, on this, whether it is Old Testament or New Testament, um, uh, the Bible is speaking to people in different times and cultures, and it's maintaining this same witness, um, and, uh, and it's not budging because of a higher law at work. Um, and even more significant would be uh, that the global church, um, so particularly outside the West, I read that, um, that response last week from a guy who said something like, uh, we don't need Western churches uh, to school us and uh, how to think about this sexual ethic. Um, so the global church, for the most part, discerns or maintains a traditional marriage ethic. Um, and then uh, the Catholic Church, Orthodox, meaning like capital O Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox, Coptic Orthodox, as far as I know, and then most evangelical churches. So a broad sweep um, uh, globally, denominationally, and then you can add to that breadth 
the kind of depth of uh, this is the main position. I think it's the only position that I'm aware of throughout church history up until recently. So with that kind of breadth and depth, uh, the sense would be um, uh, that since um, there hasn't been a discernment uh, throughout church history and currently in the global church uh, that that higher law applies, then uh, we would do well to pump the brakes a little bit on that view, um, especially especially given that the um, kind of pioneers, as far as I know, in that view are coming from the West, and uh, we know that we are in a kind of hyper-sexualized culture, and so it might be problematic to think uh, that uh, we might be the ones who should be discerning where to go forward from this. A point that I haven't added is this uh, countercultural piece. Um, so this might come back up here to the univocal biblical witness, but they would say something like, when we looked at women in ministry, it seems in some ways as though um, the New Testament and uh, maybe the Old Testament was being countercultural in kind of moving things uh, and giving women more uh, responsibility. And so, so that lended itself to thinking, well, maybe there's this place for more women to do more uh, have these kind of more um, leadership roles, um, even if it only seemed like a step ahead of the time. Whereas, um, and uh, especially in like uh, what you get in Romans, um, the, uh, the view that Paul is, is calling them to is countercultural. And so uh, it's not like he's kind of getting stuck and saying, we're going to do things the way we've always done them, uh, but he's calling them to do something that didn't fit the culture, which suggests, again, that... Um, uh, that this is something that is, is meant to be a binding command uh, for those who opt for this. So that's, that's kind of the, um, the overview that catches us up or begins to get us closer to caught up to today. Um, it's like Kavanaugh. Let's drink a bunch of water. <laughs> um, just bring a pitcher up here for me. Uh, <laughs> So I, this is where I'm, I'm nervous uh, that I'm going to um, maybe stop being heard at this point. I appreciate the grace that you have shown and, and hearing um, personally. Uh, personally, I find um, I find this to be um, compelling, but not yet convincing. Um, I. I cannot, at this point, justify, um, personally, uh, going against what is the univocal witness of Scripture, the traditional, the global view. To cut myself off from that seems uh, too great uh, at this point for me. Uh, so, so that is where I find myself. And I, I respect those who might disagree, um, but... Um, yeah, that, I don't know how to get, I don't know how to make that kind of, to sever what I see there. Um, and yet, and this is going to bring us a little bit back to where we were last week, the reality of suffering associated with this, um, man, it, it makes it really hard to say that. Um, and I, uh, and I'll, I'll say something to this effect throughout this class, I fear that the way the church so mishandles this, um, that to 
to adopt this position in a church, and I'm not saying this is the case Otter Creek, but, but in any church that is, um, is not handling this theologically and pastorally sensitively is um, it's scary. Honestly, it, it's scary. Um, because I, uh, I mean, there's part of me wants to be like, let's just, let's just forget about it so maybe less damage is done. Um, and, uh, and yet that doesn't seem to be the position that, that scripture takes. They, they call us to, to faithfulness. Um, so let me, let me try to respond as best I can to that, to say that if we're going to hold, or here's how I hold, uh, and maybe I invite you to, uh, to see from my perspective here, and then accept or reject it. But it demands that we have both uh, appropriate theological framework for this and appropriate pastoral framework uh, for navigating this. So let me start with the theological framework by returning to um, what Wesley Hill said in his uh, fantastic book, um, Washed and Waiting, where this is a, um, a gay priest, uh, theologically trained, uh, who has opted for celibacy, and um, as I'll mention in a bit, um, I had uh, multiple people say what Wesley Hill described in his experience as a Christian with same-sex attraction uh, was, was my own experience, or the experience of my child. Um, and he says, um, the shame, the shame he felt before others and before God, as though he... Uh, simply by having this orientation was somehow displeasing to God. The loneliness and isolation is simply uh, heartbreaking. And yet, he uh, says there is some theological framework that helps him navigate this. And so I will uh, point to what he says here, and then suggest if you want to go deeper in that, that you start with his book. It's only like 100 pages. Um, longer, 120 maybe. Uh, what do you call it? Oh, the appendix or something, or notes? No. Update. Oh, there's an update. Oh, okay. Well, there we go. So it's longer. Well, we would do well to read a longer book on this then. Uh, he says, um, while this suffering does have its own distinct set of burdens, um, it's not so unique that it's unrelatable to other forms, other ways that Christians suffer. Um, that many Christians know the experience of having life long, unanswered prayers. Um, and uh, while they struggle with things um, that are out of their control. And um, whether that's depression or uh, the, sometimes the loneliness that goes with uh, being single, uh, the difficulty sometimes of living a life of integrity, of sticking it out in an unhappy marriage uh, when there are no Christian grounds for divorce, of uh, loving uh, some uh, who are in our families who are burdensome, whether it's because of um, physical, emotional, uh, psychological um, issues, uh, and so forth. So, he's saying this is, um, it, it might have its distinct set of burdens, but it's, uh, it's not the only um, kind of struggle that Christians face. Um, and he adds to that that um, we have forgotten that uh, those of us who are Christians, we've gotten so comfortable that we tend to think of struggle as though it should be the exception to our Christian experience, um, rather than thinking that if we are taking up our crosses daily uh, and following um, the King 
uh, who himself was crucified for his uh, faithfulness, uh, that we too might experience suffering more normally if we are living faithfully. Uh, And then added to this, he says, part of what this exposes um, when we see, when we, when we elevate the suffering that our same-sex attracted brothers and sisters go through, when we elevate it to this kind of uh, super height, um, it reveals uh, that perhaps we have bought into a cultural notion of what, um, what life is ultimately to be about, or uh, what the full life experience is, um, as though the fullest human lives require uh, romance, or marriage, or children, or sexual satisfaction. All of those are gifts from God. That is not to downplay those. It's, he's pointing out, though, that uh, when the church perpetuates this, it's lost its bearings, because the fullest life is to uh, embrace uh, the way of Christ in whatever uh, aspect or whatever kind of position we find ourselves in. Um, and uh, if we confess as uh, Paul does in Colossians, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, uh, then that is a confession about what the fullest human life looks like. And, as far as we know, uh, he lived the fullest human life possible as a celibate man. Uh, And this will bring us back a little bit into uh, part of the problem when church culture has no space and no honor for uh, for the celibate uh, option. So that's a little on the theological framework. Again, I know my time constraints mean I can't go into a lot of depth on that. Uh, but, okay, so we've got, we've got some, some reasoning for this. We've got some theological framework. But if all we have is some good thoughts and some good theology, that's not enough. Um, if we don't also have uh, some pastoral um, stuff in place to help us, uh, we, we must have a loving, shame-free culture where same-sex attraction is treated without stigma as we treat other forms of temptation, Uh, where celibacy is viewed as an honorable path, maybe even more like a symbol of status, rather than as this kind of socially awkward phenomenon. Shame on us, right? Um, And we have to be aware... um, when we talk about this theoretically, as I'm doing in this class, this is way more than theory. Um, uh, this is the reality for people we love in this church and um, for, uh, for the loved ones of people we love in this church. In the last two weeks from this class alone, I've had more than one parent tell me that their adult child is gay and they experienced this kind of isolation and shame. Um, I've also had two adults come out to me um, this, this past week and say that Hill's words gave voice to their experience. In this very class, if this is not those people or something. This is us. This is our family. Oh. Something that struck me in that. Um, it was easier for me to talk about my own guilt with sexual sin than it was for my brothers to come and tell me about simple temptation. I mean, how backwards is it that uh, it's easier to share guilt than temptation? It's painful. It, it, how do you, um, maybe you're going in this direction. 
But how how would we, as someone who hasn't experienced some of these things, avoid having that blind spot that creates no space for those right. people? Um, I mean, is is that a is that something you were considering here or not? I'll talk a little bit about some some resources toward the end, um, but it's not something I can solve in the last twenty minutes. It's a culture shift, and and the truth is, the responses I've gotten. From, from this class tells me that Otter Creek is a place that does and can do that, but it just might not be clear. Uh, and so finding some way to voice that, that this is a safe place. Um, but I don't know, that I, I'm not a strategy person. Yeah, I, I don't think anyone here would ever say no or you can't. I just don't think we know what it feels like. I don't think we know and so I just yeah. ignorant. I, I think that's that's part of it. And um, yeah, I'll, I'll point to a couple of resources of where something that Otter Creek might do to make steps in this area, kind of pastorally appropriate steps. Um, and I think, you know, just acknowledging that we have work to do is, is important. Uh, but if, if this whole conversation stops in this classroom, I will feel really just heartbroken. Uh, because basically all I've done is say, I think this is what we should do. Good luck with that, for those of you who struggle with that. Yeah? I just think, to respond to that, I think when you say don't, it feels like, I think the first thing to do is to start building relationships with individuals who are walking through this. That's how you know what it feels like. And to know um, how to better serve these individuals is to build relationships with them. Right. And that's but, the first thing. But as he pointed out, I mean, there are people among us who are experiencing this and they how would we ever know to reach out and have that conversation with them? Yeah, In my experience, tough. it's trying to seek out relationships with those who are trying to find people that are experiencing that. Yeah. It's hard. No, it's, this is tough. Let me, let me move through a little bit more of this, and then we'll, um, we'll, we'll do a little Q&A and, and maybe a little brainstorming if, if we have time. Um, I did want to, towards you know, an end of, of offering a pastoral response, one, one individual... Um, uh, who who um, I spoke with this week um, said it was it, they would be happy with me making this announcement um, that if any of you are navigating this confusing, painful, lonely journey and are looking for some resources that might help, um, you can contact me um, and um, I can connect you with someone confidentially who has been on this journey a while and who would be happy to let you know that you are not alone and who could point you to some resources, uh, even here in Nashville, that have been helpful. So throwing that out there, um, because if, if uh, a few people have already spoken to me about this, that tells me that there are more people um, who uh, are probably looking for, uh, for help in this area as well. Um, one of the things that came up in, the, in one of these conversations was um, a reminder that there is a stereotype and uh, in our culture that all uh, same-sex attracted Christians think that the traditional marriage and sexual ethic is wrong. That is, there's a stereotype that says, if you're same-sex attracted, you have to believe this. Uh, but Wesley Hill and, um, and uh, someone else I spoke to um, basically said, that's, that's, not, that's not my story. My story is, I, I'm more in this camp, um, and uh, that's, that's not fair to categorize me that way. Um, and that kind of assumption doesn't help the conversation. 
um, either. Hill says, what's the Hill says about half the folks he knows that are Christians um, maintain a traditional sexual ethic. Um, so I imagine as I'm sharing this, thinking uh, about the various voices um, who might be in the room and say, but what about? And since I'm trying to do this neither fundamentalist nor liberal uh, thing, um, it means that, um, that we are not naive to maybe the, the opposite side of this, that in our com- compassion we remain, as Jesus taught us, wise as serpents and gentle as doves. We bear one another's burdens, but we, and we mourn with those who mourn. Yet, we are naive if we don't think that uh, the powers that be, that evil will seek to take our best intentions and, um, and use them to less than ideal ends. Uh, we see this in other areas. The compassion that we rightly have for the difficulties of single mothers um, has uh, sometimes been uh, leveraged to justify abortion. Um, and I think that while there are good intentions there, uh, that is a problematic way of applying those good intentions. Um, and uh, while compassion should shape what we do here, um, it's, it's, we're naive if we don't look and recognize that there, are, there is a, a, a cultural um, piece to all this where uh, some would like to leverage that compassion to dismantle notions about the sanctity of sex and marriage or who would bully traditional Christians by treating them all as bigots and homophobes. Uh, and and that's, that's not healthy either. Um, and that's not a fair, um, fair way of, uh, of viewing things. So, uh, we, we, um, we are compassionate, and yet we are wise at the same time. Um, so where... How might I begin to wrap some of this up? Um, I told you where I stand on this. Do you want to know a percentage? Let's say I'm 85% sure I'm right. <laughs> if I'm completely honest. This is not a 100% thing for me. And I have studied this in, in some serious detail. Um, it's, and I feel strong enough that um, I will teach on it and I will, make, uh, and I will state my position. Um, and because of that, um, I, uh, the conversation remains open to me. Um, I am always looking to learn more from the New Testament. I want to go where Scripture leads, uh, but right now uh, I am sticking where I sense that it's led. And, you know, if the entire global church, not entire, but if there is this huge change globally, and the discernment of the Spirit on this issue, uh, then I would be willing to rethink my position. Uh, but because of what seems to me to be the biblical witness and because of the way the church universal seems to be discerning this, um, that's, that's why I am where I am uh, without saying um, that I'll never change. Um, I just don't foresee that. Okay. Um, what does this look like practically then? Well, I've already kind of hinted at that uh, for those who have same-sex attraction, it may look like celibacy. This is what Wesley Hill opts for. Um, for some uh, who might have uh, something of a spectrum of attraction, um, uh, traditional marriage uh, might be an option. Uh, there's a guy here in town. He was a Lipscomb grad, Peter Valk. Some of you may have heard of him. Um, who is a, a gay man, 
celibates, as far as I know. And um, his part of his mission is to help churches think through this. But I think we have to hear, uh, this is his own words, um, and you get a sense of his heart and the problem that he, uh, he sees. To be clear, I have always had orthodox Christian beliefs about how God invites me to steward my sexuality. That God calls all people to celibacy or to Christian marriage with someone of the opposite sex. But there have been plenty of bumps along the way. There have been plenty of times when out of my loneliness and isolation, I reached out for something, anything, to make me feel again or to stop feeling. And while I've taken responsibility for my actions, and this is where I really want you to hear this, while I've taken responsibility for my actions, I've come to see that the source of that problem lies more outside than within. The church, and he's speaking from his experience here, isn't a place where single people can find deep love and friendship. The church isn't a place where celibate people can find family. My vocation of celibacy isn't valued. The rich theology of celibacy in Scripture isn't taught. There aren't clear pathways for my thriving. Straight Christians don't know how to love gay people well. The church doesn't prepare our pastors and parents to minister to us. No one knows how to care for me. Again, I'm not saying this applies to Otter Creek. I'm just saying this is his own um, experience in this. And uh, even if you think, oh, that's overstating it, there's still a lot of truth in this. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. Gay kids shouldn't have to worry whether their friends or family will still love them when they come out. We shouldn't have to come out to see who will really love us, and I shouldn't have to write this post. Um, so if you're thinking practical ways, he has a ministry that seems to be really well received where he walks churches uh, through doing this well. I don't know if we've had Peter Valk. Or, do you know, Hilson? He's here on Wednesday night. Is he, he is. Is, is that right? Okay. Night, isn't Peter speaking yeah. in the Wednesday night class? Okay. He's speaking yeah. Wednesday night. So, this, Josh, we, this coming next two Wednesdays, okay. I Josh, we, well, the shepherds have, have used him as a, as a resource, uh, particularly on a task force. Okay, well, good. So there's already connections. So I, I'm not saying this is the option, but finding something like this would be a wise, seems to me a wise kind of move. Um, and I, uh, you know, I'm deeply grateful that the elders are thinking about this theologically and compassionately um, uh, as we're navigating this. Um, so, last thing, and then I'll open it up to Q&A. Um, I know some of you are, have the kind of, but what, what about questions and uh, you'll part of the question is like is there a way to actually apply this and maybe part of the motive is can we find exceptions that uh, to the rule and then use those exceptions uh, to make a new rule um, so uh, you know one of those but what about questions that's really tough is what if a uh, what if a gay couple um, comes to our church and they have children um, and they want to, you know, become Christian and, and uh, join our church, what do we do about that? Um, and, and there's not a, there's no pronouncement from on high. Um, one strategy that I've, I've heard that I think there's some wisdom in, wisdom in, is to think about it the way other, um, like missionaries, uh, might navigate um, uh, handling polygamy uh, in, in other cultures, where, 
when they come into a uh, maybe an African tribe where polygamy is practiced, the move isn't to break up the families and make them look just like um, the ideal kind of Christian uh, marriage might look. Instead, it's to say the best pastoral response is to not break up uh, the families um, to going forward, not sanction any more polygamous marriages, um, but that we are going to um, kind of walk or, or say this they should stay together. Um, but one way of kind of acknowledging that this is an ideal would be that uh, the uh, those in polygamous marriages wouldn't be able to be in leadership positions. So it's a kind of a, this balanced uh, way. And maybe that even that's what's happening like in, um, in the elder list. When Paul says he should be a man of one woman, uh, it could be that what he's saying there is uh, this man should not have multiple wives, uh, which could then acknowledge that there were polygamous converts in the church and that Paul's pastoral response is not break them up, but they just can't hold leadership roles. Um, so that might be um, one way to navigate something like that, where we recognize that, um, that there, there may be um, some wiggle room or some thoughtful ways of approaching this. All right, so now the part I fear the most. Um, we got uh, seven or eight minutes maybe for Q&A. Again, if you have... For those of you who haven't been here the past two weeks, I want to give priority to those who have kind of walked through this and heard all the nuancing, and then I'll open it up if there's still space. Yes? So going back to what you were talking about, about the scenario of a, of a gay couple with children uh -huh. coming into a congregation, welcoming, accepting, but not allowing them in leadership roles, uh -huh. that's a particular sticking point among my... Christian gay friends mm -hmm. um, because they, in many cases they feel there's a bait and switch that goes on where when they come in everybody says this is great you know we'll, we will we will welcome you into our community <coughs> but only so far mm -hmm. and that there is a big difference between welcoming and we're not going to make you leave uh huh and, and, and for me, that's that, that's the balance that, that I would like us to try to find and, and, and know where that is, to be honest up front with all of this without alienating somebody, mm -hmm. but also to be welcoming without fading and switching. Them. Right, and that's... In that's getting more and more difficult in our current culture where to, to say no to anything feels, feels like a, uh, inhospitable. Right. Rather than saying, this is our home, this is our rules in our home, you're welcome to visit our home, and if you want to become a member, you got to, you know, like, but that's, that, that option almost seems uh, impossible to, um, to practice. I mean, if we think of a parallel, would be a couple that is cohabitating, uh, and we want them to feel welcomed, and um, like they can, they can visit, and that we will love them. But if they want to become a member, then you know, living together and sleeping together outside of marriage is not. Yeah. But we wouldn't want that to feel like a bait and switch. There, as Wesley right. Hill says, we need clarity on the front end, and and sometimes clarity on the front end might mean that uh, there's a feeling of being unwelcome. Um, but the solution, let's say the cohabiting cohabitating couple, the solution isn't to abandon the Christian sexual ethic. Um, to be completely open and hospitable. It's just 
sometimes it's just messy, I think. Uh, and I don't, I don't know how to, how to slice that up and uh, to make it this much you know, clarity but still be this much hospitable. It's tough. I think that we acknowledge that's important. Uh-huh. Going along with that, I just feel like, well, with my son, he's transgender and most of his friends are gay, but um, it's like saying that that is the ultimate thing that you cannot be and, and who he is. And he has he's felt that he doesn't mm -hmm. go to church anywhere because he's not welcome. Um, he can't be who he is. But it's like saying, it's like a minister who is overweight <coughs> telling him he can't you have you know, gays wrong. Mm -hmm. And it's like overweight's okay. And, and it's, it's not okay to be, I, I just don't know how to treat every sin as love the person. And, and, and it's not, you know, I, I just don't know how to do it. I don't know how to do it. And, and I, I just see that kind of saying, okay, this is, this is the line. You can't cross right. this line. Because yeah, that's how, it, that's how, it's, how it's it going feels. to feel. It actually it does feel right. that. Yeah. Yeah, like so this is another one of those places where um, the, the church has some repenting to do. Absolutely. Uh, the solution, uh, it still doesn't seem to me the solution is to, to abandon the no. traditional ethic, but the, to be honest about and to treat, to not treat this as though it's, it's in a different category. I mean, Paul kind of puts all several sins in the same list. Um, and this is part of the reason that it's hard to teach this is because I want to be honest and show integrity with where I think scripture and theology is um, and at the same time realizing that the church is such a messed up place that, um, that it's inevitably going to be mishandled um, and uh, yeah so I yeah we have repenting to do absolutely I mean going off of that the mentioning of the church being a messed up place you know God and Jesus are perfect. We who interpret that are not. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a pretty relevant thing. So, yeah, that we're going to make mistakes in yeah. how we navigate this? Yeah. Oh, there's, absolutely. There's no... It's, we don't know what God wants as far as how to navigate it. Yeah, so we need to do so humbly, but... But not knowing certainly doesn't mean we can't do really diligent work to give it our best shot. Um, and I think, um, I think sometimes, and I'm not even beginning to accuse you of this, I think sometimes the idea is we can't know for sure, therefore anything goes. Instead of we can't know for well, sure, let's do our yeah, wisest. It's, well, it's, yeah, I've really enjoyed this whole discussion on all these topics because it's, I think that the whole, there's one way to do it mm -hmm. on all these topics, not just, you know, gay marriage or whatever, but all of them, there there has to be more nuance. Yes, amen. Just, you know, like the whole platitudes, as you said, as you've said this whole time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. I I'm right with you. Yes. In your opinion, are there other biblical biblical witnesses that we in the church have set aside set aside or overturned or So are there other are there other places like this where the church is um man, you asked that with like two minutes left. Uh, 
Man. Uh, I think there are places that are closer to black and white that we might. I, I, would, I don't want to just give a knee-jerk response. Maybe I'll think about that and come back to it. But I, um, there are places where I, I think so. Um, or, it, yeah, at least it's more dark gray and light gray or something that we're, yeah. And that's sinful. It's just simply sinful. Uh, and then it continues to perpetuate the idea that um, uh, sexual sin or same-sex sexual sin is somehow of a greater category. Saw a hand? Yeah. I was just asking... Um, in, in this picture, yes. can you bring this topic back to this picture? Oh, yeah. I don't have my... Can I hold this? Yes. All right. So we'll finish out with thinking about how maybe this fits into the bullseye. Um, so uh, we've tried to look at the biblical plot line, um, and that's part of where you see um, this traditional teaching, marriage, one man, one woman, seems to be the overall sweep of Scripture from creation um, and, and it gets messy in the Old Testament where it's not only one man, one woman, but even those instances of polygamy seem to be described in the Bible as, as uh, causing problems. Polygamy never goes well in the Old Testament, which seems to again show uh, that that's the, that's the view. And then that seems to continue throughout Scripture. Um, so biblical plot line, that's how I might put this. Rule of faith, there is no, there's no pronouncement about this in the rule of faith, so that's, that's not as, as relevant. Um, uh, the rule of faith is more getting to what's central um, than what these kind of ethical things. Coherency of scripture, this is where the univocal biblical witness comes in. Um, the uh, love of God and love of neighbor is part of what I've tried to be arguing for about compassion and, and, and thinking this through um, pastorally, responsibly. Um, and then if we were to uh, try to discern the spirit in this, uh, that's where I'm saying that we're listening to how the church universal has done this and the church historical has done this. Um, experience matters. I don't know how many people seem to have kind of shifted or softened or leaned in when I read that account from Wesley Hill. Uh, it, again, this is not the game ender or the conversation ender, but, but if we don't take that seriously, we're going to mess this up bad. Um, our ancestors, that's where I talked about the traditional view of things. Uh, community, this is where we're trying to, to navigate this together. And then absolutely humility. If, if we don't have humility at the end of this. So where do I put this? Like I said, I'm, I'm 85% on saying it's, it falls in that outside circle. Because I don't know how to justify not doing that. But perhaps um, 10 years from now, if the global church shifts and New Testament research changes on this, it might I might see in the flexible category. I just don't see that happening. But always willing to learn and grow. All right. Thank you. Thank Josh. you all. Yes. Thank you. Uh, Thank you.